0: Have you ever wondered if ancient tales of legendary creatures might have a hint of scientific truth? Dr. Adrienne Mayer, a renowned historian and folklorist, takes us on a riveting journey to uncover the possible inspiration for these mythical beasts as we discuss her most recent book, Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws. But the adventure doesn't stop there. We venture further down the rabbit hole, examining how the tales we tell today predict the future we create tomorrow. This is the Aiming for the Moon podcast, and I'm your host, Taylor Bloodso. On this podcast, I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast and subscribe. You can follow us at aiming4moon on all the socials to stay up to date on podcast news and episodes. Check out the episode notes for Professor Mayer's full bio and links to our website, aimingforthemoon.com, as well as the podcast sub-stack, Lessons from Interesting People. All right, with that, sit back, relax, and listen in. Thanks again to Paxton Page for this incredible music. Well, welcome, Professor Mayer, to the interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So you are a historian and um, folklorist, and you study basically how the origins of myths, the scientific origins, and what you think influenced how these myths were created. And is that a good way to represent your work? Yeah. Well, great. So the thing that I found fascinating about it is whenever you read about classical mythology and some of the other myths, you Mm -hmm. always wonder, are these things that the cultures believe? Are these things almost like Bigfoot in our society? Things that some people believe – but the vast majority is questioning. So do you know what the relationship between these myths and their societies are? That's a really
1: fascinating question. And I can tell you, there are classical scholars who work on that very question. And of course, we don't really know because um, so much literature and art from classical antiquity has been lost. I mean, we only have what Tip of the iceberg: things that have survived, texts that uh, have survived, as, and it's random whether or not they survived or not. And um, it even um, even the art, which can really help us understand what people believed in or or like what kind of stories they like to listen to. Um, even that is really patchy and and random. Um, a curator of ancient vase paintings at, uh, at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles once told me that of the thousands of vase paintings that have survived that we have, beautiful vase paintings of mythology. And, uh, he said that represents about 1% of what really existed in antiquity. So you can see the problem in figuring out what people really believed. Um, I know there is a book, actually, I can't think of the author's name right now, but it, the, The title of the book is, did the ancient Greeks believe their myths? So we don't really know, but this guy has written an entire book on that topic. If you want to look further uh, into that, Um, we just don't really know. Uh, I really am interested in mythology because I think it, I'm more interested. actually, I should go back. Mythology about gods. I'm, In antiquity, I'm not that interested in what I'm really interested in are legends and um, things that don't actually include the gods, but actually talk about mysterious things in nature or things that seem like they could be true or have a little germ of truth or a little nugget of truth. That's what I'm always looking for, just ferreting out, um, just sort of kernels of reality that are embedded in legends and popular folklore from antiquity, the myths all about gods and uh, gods and um, demigods and heroes. That's not really as interesting to me because uh, I don't really know whether people believed in the gods or not. I know they did the rituals um, as a lot of people practice their religion today is the rituals that are most important, but I'm really interested in legends and popular folklore about nature, especially because I think those things would be perpetuated um, if people could see and touch something that seemed real to them that would confirm those stories. So that's actually what I'm I'm mostly interested in.
0: So then let's get into that a little bit more. What are some of the origin? What are some of these um legends? And then what are some of the origins that you've looked into? The one that your book's named after that I read for this are the flying snakes and the <laughs> griffin claws, right? So, I guess let's just start there.
1: Well, flying snakes has always uh fascinated me because it was first written about flying snakes, winged serpents, um, supposedly. Uh, in Egypt or in the area border between Sinai Desert and Egypt, so Arabia, ancient Arabia, and Herodotus is the first to have written about this in the fifth century BC, so about 470 BC, um, 2500 years ago, he actually traveled around uh, the Mediterranean and went to Egypt, and he was a really curious guy and he pestered priests and uh, storytellers and elders and ordinary people about the folklore that he heard in all the various places he went to uh, and so he he went he says in his book which I'll talk about later because you're going to ask me about what books influenced me and I love Herodotus he was so curious. Uh, he said in his writings I went to Egypt and I went to specifically, inquire about the flying snakes of Arabia. And so he actually went to a temple where he heard that um, was dedicated to a goddess of flying cobras. But he also wanted to find out if there were really flying snakes in Arabia. These snakes were supposed to uh, hang out or be around the um, bushes, frankincense bushes, where people gathered frankincense, which was a really costly, precious incense that only came from these certain trees in Arabia. So he was investigating the story. Were there really flying snakes around these trees? And one one possible explanation is that the people who gathered the precious frankincense, maybe they made made up that story just to keep people away from this really precious resource that they were in charge of so there is that but Herodotus's uh description of the flying snakes that he heard from various people in Egypt and the Sinai desert there's so it's so detailed that I felt that this is a folklore about nature that must have something real to it what could the flying snakes be some people have suggested, that it was a, a kind of insect, really large, maybe a maybe very large dragonflies. Um, Herodotus says that a, as they migrated through Egypt, uh, these flocks of ibis uh, birds, large water birds, would actually eat these um, flying snakes. So that's a suggestion that it could be something like a dragonfly or insect or maybe some kind of snake. Um, There are flying snakes in the other parts of the world, in the tropics, in Asia, but those don't exist anywhere in the desert. So unless there was some species of flying snake with a membrane wings that we don't even know about, um, then it's probably not a living flying snake. On the other hand, Herodotus told us he was shown taken to a valley or a sort of gorge where he saw heaps and heaps of the bones of remains, the skeletons of flying snakes. So what could that be? Is it some kind of fossil that he saw or was it um, maybe washed up by these lakes that would recede and then uh, wax and wane over time and they would wash up? Uh, skeletons of something that looked like flying snakes. So um, I don't want to have a spoiler for that chapter, but I think I propose about six or seven different uh, ideas for what those snakes with wings could have been. And we'll never know for sure. That's the other thing about my research is I'll never know for sure. It's always circumstantial evidence, but some of it can be pretty convincing. So...
0: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I'm curious. So when you're researching these ancient animals and these ancient, the other ancient creatures in biology that people have discussed, where do you draw the line uh, between, okay, maybe this existed, but they're extinct and that's why we don't see them today. And then maybe these are just takes on other animals. So how do you right. determine that in your research?
1: Well, one of the... Um- Fantastic or fabulous creatures that I have researched is the ancient griffin, which I, I'm sure everybody knows what a griffin looks like now since uh, Harry Potter and various other uh, um, griffins appear a lot uh, these days. But in antiquity, people believed that it was a real animal and that it had four legs, but four legs sort of like a lion or a wolf or something like a, a mammal. Uh, a quadruped, but its head was like uh, that of a raptor—an eagle, or a vulture, or a, um, some kind of raptor with a beak. So, when I first started researching that, I I found out that there is no myth about griffins. So that's one reason. What I said earlier, I'm not as interested in the official myths of antiquity, more interested in the folklore and the legends. And griffins were legendary, not part of myth. There is no myth about griffins. Um, but there are lots and lots of griffins in ancient Greek art. And they're always shown with four legs and a beak, um, sometimes uh, wings and form, uh, weird formations on the back of their necks. Um, they're, they were said to live in the far uh, remote lands of Asia um, and that they made their nests on the ground and that they laid their eggs on the ground uh, like a ground bird um, but not like a mammal because mammals of course give have live birth um, and that um, we even have some art that shows mother griffins with baby uh, griffins. We have some art that shows griffins guarding their nest filled with golden eggs. And in the legends, griffins were said to guard or defend or be around the area where the uh, um, nomads of Asia would gather gold and that they were supposedly protecting those lands. So once again, it could be stories told by uh, the nomads who gathered the gold, right? They maybe made up these stories just to keep people away from their precious resource. So, um, but the fact that the details, we have all these details that there are nests with eggs and that they guarded their, their nests with babies and, um, that sometimes, uh, that you would come across them. Uh, but one thing that made me believe in the story is that, first of all, no myths about them. It's lo- legends about a faraway land and the kind of fauna that would live in that land. Also all the details about their nests on the ground with eggs. And um, no one ever claimed over a thousand years of writing about griffins, Greek and uh, Roman authors, no one ever claimed to see a live one. So that made me think, is there some kind of evidence that made people believe in it, even though no one ever saw a live one? And I started thinking four legs and a beak. What living animals has four legs and a beak? Can you think of what,
0: Taylor? <laughs> there, I mean, I would assume there are dinosaurs um, throughout all of right. the... Right, once yeah. living.
1: Right. But any living animal today that they might have seen? No. The only thing I could come up with is a turtle. Uh, with is a turtle. But a turtle has four legs, right? <laughs> a kind of beak-like face, but that doesn't fit the griffin, right? <laughs> <laughs> these are supposed to be very fierce animals that preyed on um, stags and horses and humans. So it's not a turtle. So that just—I had the same impulse that you did. Maybe a dinosaur because you can think of lots of dinosaurs that you've seen in natural history museums that have four legs and they have beaks because they combine the uh, co- the um, features of a bird and a mammal. In uh, but these things all went extinct 65 million years ago except for birds which still exist um they are dinosaurs and they have a beak but they don't have four legs so i focused on dinosaurs um so that's that's basically how i sort of winnow it down to what could possibly be real about this story and if people came across dinosaur skeletons in that area where those nomads were looking for gold um that might explain the evidence that would keep the story perpetuating. And sure enough, I found out that in the region where the ancient Greeks and Romans said that ancient prospectors for gold came across dinosaurs, that's, that was a vast nesting ground of dinosaurs with beaks and four legs. And they make their nests on the ground and they lay their eggs in the nests. And you can find the nests there too. In fact, paleontologists have told me you cannot walk through that area without coming across nests with petrified eggs and even hatching babies. And they're some of the most exquisitely preserved dinosaur skeletons in the world. So they're fully articulated um, and they erode out of the cliffs there, usually the beak first and then the rest of the skeleton. And some of them are standing up. So you can just imagine how eerie that would be for prospectors going through that area and early travelers. I think that's the evidence that kept the story going. You know, we don't know which came first, the story of an um, animal with four legs and a head like a bird, because you can see those in ancient art, but we don't know the stories, which came first, the the image and the idea of something that was a hybrid or the observation of fossils, you never know which came first, but I think they might be related in some way. It's kind of a feedback loop.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very fascinating. Have any of these um, stories come to influ- uh, influence us today and how we think about the world and how we think about new discoveries? I don't know if you've researched that, but it's kind of interesting because if you think about some of these ideas that have gone throughout our cultures, and the closest one, now obviously this is not a fair comparison, but Star Trek and then how we kind of develop technologies around what we saw there – have any of these myths influenced the ways we have innovated or the way we have thought about animals?
1: I'm not sure if, it, um, if uh, it's the way we think about animals, but in a pre my previous book was called gods and robots. And it was about ancient automatons. And we have actually ancient Greek uh, myths and stories about automatons. And those uh, in, Im- those ways of imagining, making artificial life and animated statues in mythology—it was really shocking to most people to, to realize that people could imagine things like that, building things like that with, with technology. It was built by the god of technology, Prometheus, uh, Prometheus and uh, Hephaestus, uh, who are the gods of innovation and technology, and yet. They were mad imag- people in antiquity were imagining these things long before the technology to make anything like that existed. But in antiquity, after those myths had circulated for c- centuries or millennia, they began building um, automated statues that could raise their arms, close their eyes, open their mouths, even make sounds, um, move. Um, they were inventing those things as early as the fourth and third century BC. So many people have said where imagination, uh, if you think of these myths about automatons as uh, the first science fiction stories, many people have said where science fiction uh, leads, technology often follows. So I think that in the case of, I mean, we're not talking about my most recent book, but. but the book before that was uh, really did have that feature that you that you just brought up, that it has affected um, it affects technology later. So by the Middle Ages, people were making clockwork mechanisms and real robots. Um and they were influenced by the ancient stories, ancient myths and even artistic um base paintings of of the first robots in myth. So I think that I think it's very true that um, if you imagine uh, ancient science, science fiction in those myths, that really has affected how how people have um, tried to imitate nature, um, improve on nature, and then even surpass nature. So uh, it doesn't apply to I think how we think of animals so much, uh, but it certainly does for technology like Uh, automation and AI.
0: Um, Yeah, the other, the last question I had before we wrap up is sometimes throughout cultures, you see these similar motifs of folklore and legends that kind of go around. So you have stories about dragons, and you have stories about all different kinds of creatures that might have existed. How do you, do you explain these by saying that there are that they discovered bones of dinosaurs that they thought were similar? Or what do you guys, what do researchers in your area um, say about these similar myths and these motifs?
1: And uh, especially one, uh, one um, really outstanding example of that is dragon myths. Um, and dragons are always like the sort of hybrid composite creature of many different, uh, many, many different um, living animals like Birds, fish, um, sea creatures, land creatures, uh, even insects, uh, a composite of that. And in some places, like in China, people can actually, you can find links between uh, uh, fossils that are found in China and, you know, of long extinct creatures and the way they drew dragons, um but there are also dragon stories in places where there are no conspicuous fossils, so we don't want to um, put down the storytelling uh imagination right Anyone can come up with a uh, a composite creature or monster just by um, a mishmash of of all kinds of features of living creatures that you know about, and then you add some imaginary stuff too. So there are dragons around the world, stories that go back millennia of dragons. And sometimes uh, you can say that discoveries of fossils, perplexing fossils of creatures you've never seen with bizarre uh, features, those might serve to influence or perpetuate the belief Con- seem to confirm a belief in dragons on the other hand in places uh where there are no fossils those stories are perpetuated so i i think that uh stories about dragons and monsters just arise in the storytelling imagination all around the world in cultures throughout time and place um they don't always have to be uh influenced or inspired by by fossils um we have great imaginations and we always have. So um, I think that fossils might uh, help confirm the story, but you don't need that confirmation to keep telling the story.
0: (laughs) So wrapping up here with the last two questions we ask all of our guests, the first one is what books have had an impact on you?
1: Well, since I'm a classical um, uh, oriented person, I'm really interested in antiquity. So I have to say that Homer's Iliad and Odyssey um, are really influential to me, and I think that's those are two stories that you can read over and over again throughout your life. You'll always find something new in it. Um, some people read the Iliad for the great war stories, uh, and it, they it has fabulous war stories, but also people notice that when they read it like the third or fourth time, that Homer is really, it's sort of an anti-war treatise about how awful war is for all generations. That, you know, like the <laughs> parents, uh, that kind of thing. So you always find something new in Homer. Um, and I mentioned Herodotus. Uh, my favorite author from antiquity. Um, He's just sort of one of my heroes and guides in writing because he was just insatiably curious. Greek historian, he traveled to exotic lands, interviewed local people. He was like the first anthropologist. Um, He he was always curious, and he asked people about their histories, their languages, their customs, and then he would bring the stories back to, to Athens and... Uh, We have evidence that he actually would read them out loud to to the Athenians. And uh, in the writings, when you read Herodotus, he sometimes ends a a chapter by saying, well, that's enough about that. And you know that he's, you know, it's almost like he's saying, go ahead, ask me some more questions. So, you know, that they started as oral stories Um, and he kept an open mind and he was often um, skeptical but he could never let a good story go. And I feel like that's a great model for me. So I uh, really love Herodotus.
0: <laughs> yeah, I haven't read any Herodotus, but we read the Iliad this year for school. Oh, and yeah. It was yeah. very interesting, because yeah. it was surprisingly readable. I thought it would be yes. I, I didn't know what I was thinking it was going to be. Um, but yeah. I was surprised by how readable it was. I don't think a lot of people expect that with ancient works.
1: It depends on if you have an old translation or a new translation. And some of the new translations are really accessible and make it really readable. Um, It's really fun to read it out loud, too. Um, uh, And as I say, there are so many stories there, and you can take so many different messages from them. Besides just being good stories, they also have things that, uh, that are just really significant and important. And that's why it's been perpetuated until now over the millennia
0: its They're all very interesting. And wrapping up now with our last question, what advice do you have for teenagers? Well,
1: (laughs) I guess I would say read. I think reading is one of the most important things you can rely on throughout your whole life. And as a child, I lived in South Dakota, and I could not wait until Fridays when the bookmobile, it was like a... A van with books in it that would come to my little town, and I would take out as many books as I could. We were allowed three, and finally they let me take out five every week. And I, reading, just saved my life because you can, you'll never really be lonely, and there are adventures just between the between the covers of a book. So I would say, read, and it doesn't matter if you're a slow reader or a fast reader. It doesn't matter what you read. I mean read uh, poems, nonfiction, uh, fiction, uh, comic books, anything. If you can read, you will have adventures and escape uh, whenever you need it. So that's my advice.
0: Well, thank you so much, Professor Mayer, for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed our discussion.
1: Thank you so much.